0: from Romans 14 today, Um, Romans 14. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, so that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God, so then each of us will give an account of God to himself. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is clean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed unclean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks, Claire. Well, good morning. Good morning. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to Sedaris. My name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here. And you know what? I thought I just would go kind of uh, on the theme today and just open us up in prayer. You know, here at Sedaris, we just realize that anything that we do... Uh, means nothing unless God comes alongside it and empowers it. And so there's a lot of prayer happening, and so thank you for participating with us in that as we dedicate babies, as we uh, acknowledge elder and deacon candidates, as we pray for the lost of the city. Now let's just pray for our time together, okay? Um, Father God, as we open up your word today, um, as we open up the Bible to explore what you have revealed to us about the universe and how it works, uh, what you have revealed to us about ourselves and how we work, what you have revealed to us about your plan of salvation through Christ, through your gospel. What you have revealed to us about yourself, God, we just ask for your help. Um, we open part of your word today, Lord. That is, um, it's a strange passage to our ears, to our 21st century ears. It is uh, unpacking strange debates that we don't necessarily understand. But I ask that you would give us minds to understand it today, Lord. I ask that you would give us um, stomachs that can, that can handle your scripture, that we might be able to hold it within us, that it might minister to our hearts and point us towards you and stir up our affections for you, one another in the world. And so I just pray for my brothers and sisters here today, God, would you help us uh, stay focused in this outdoor setting, God, and um, we just uh, expect you to do great things through our time together right now pray all this in the name of Jesus and by your spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, so we're in Romans chapter 14 today, which is uh, historically a, a very interesting text, a very difficult text uh, to work through and understand, but we're, it's the next one that we're diving into with regards to the sermon series that we're in right now, which we've called Build Up. Build Up. This is my first time preaching outside, and apparently you've got to hold your papers down. So, uh, <laughs> just learning new things. Dave, you should have given me a heads up, man. Where are you? No, um, no. but we're, we're in a sermon series called Build Up right now. And uh, it's really important right now because um, as we've been talking with folks, if I've been talking with folks and we've been talking about how to grow and mature, uh, a, a typical response goes like this. Hey, I'm just trying to survive right now. I've just been surviving. I've got my head down and I'm trying to survive. And, and I totally get that. I'm trying to survive too, me and my wife at home with our kids. Um, and, and, and as we lead as we continue in those conversations, what we tend to see and what is prone to happen historically as we examine this notion of surviving is that just surviving can lead to stagnation. It can lead to decline. It can lead to even depression in some cases. Uh, By the way, I guess this is a public service announcement. We're about to enter the fall here in Seattle, and if you don't have vitamin D in your cabinet, you better get some, okay? Get that vitamin D. Start taking that vitamin D supplement every day. I'm serious. There's like a QFC right over here. There's a Walgreens. Just on your way home. Get your vitamin D. We're about to start losing the sunlight. Okay. Um, But no, uh, as we hope to just survive, there can be a a tendency to actually decline and go down. Um, And so we thought it might be really appropriate to just ask right now, wait, how does God build up his church even now? Because here's the truth. God wants to build us up. He wants to grow us. He's not limited by uh, weather He's not limited by smoke, disease, political decisions. He's not limited by social unrest. He's not limited by lack of a worship space. Here we are. He is all powerful and always working for the good and the growth of his people. That's the truth. And and so in this sermon series, we're looking at how God does that. Our unique time lets us investigate that with one another too, because if you're built up right now, it must be something supernatural because everything else that typically used to build us up has been stripped away. It's been taken away from us. Okay, and what's going to become apparent as we go through the service series each week is that, um, well, we're going to bounce around the entire Bible, but is that one of the primary ways that God builds up his people is through his people. God builds up his people through his people. God builds up his people through the church. He does it by empowering those who have faith in him to build up and encourage one another. And week one, we explored how he does that through senior leadership. Last week, we unpacked about how God's love empowers us to love one another as he has loved us. So those are two things that God does to build up his church. Today, we're going to shift gears a little bit, and we're going to look at the biggest obstacle that gets in the way of God using us to build up his church. Okay, we're going to examine the biggest obstacle that tends to get in the way And as Claire read the passage, uh, the the obstacle bumped up and came up time and time again. It jumped up, over and over, and it really is the biggest thing that that limits God's building of His own church. Um, The biggest obstacle in the first century wasn't uh, the the bad leaders that were governing the empire, although they were psychopaths, some of them. It wasn't disease, although it was everywhere. Um, It wasn't famine, although there was a significant famine in the first century. It wasn't persecution. Although there was plenty of that, and it wasn't a lack of resources, even though the church is comprised primarily of the poorest in society. Those aren't the biggest obstacles that held the church back as you read through the New Testament. Now, if you were to read through all the letters in the New Testament, you would find is that the largest obstacle, the biggest difficulty that got in the way of the Jesus movement, the biggest thing the Jesus movement had to overcome, was itself. The biggest obstacle was Christians refusing to love one another, refusing to encourage one another, refusing to be unified because they'd rather judge one another. The biggest obstacle to God's active building of Christianity then for 2,000 years is now and now is Christians. It's always been Christians. It's you and it's, it's me. And, and this is something that Jesus saw coming. This didn't catch God by surprise. That's why at the Last Supper, when Jesus had all of his disciples together, when he's on doing his last prayer with them, his prayer is focused on how they might be able to extend grace to one another, on how they might love one another, on how they might stay unified together as they brought his movement forward into the world. And in almost every letter in the New Testament, we see the apostolic author contending for this same unity in communities where division and discord are everywhere. And this is part of the great hypocritical irony of the church for 2,000 years. This isn't an easy word to say, but it's, it's true of, of the church. It's true of all of us in some way. That those who had most clearly received the grace and sacrificial love of Christ found it difficult to extend grace to or sacrifice for one another. The very people who had received the most beautiful forgiveness held on to resentment. Those who received the kindness, the, the patient, the hospitality of God we're quick to judge and dismiss and separate from one another. And and so, because this is so prevalent, like I said, Paul deals with it in all of his letters, but most robustly here in Romans chapter 14, and that's why we're here today. And what's interesting is that Paul had never been to Rome. He didn't know much about this Roman church, other than uh, the the things that he may have heard reports about it. But he includes the most robust message really regarding Christians not judging one another because like Jesus, his experience taught him that if it wasn't present already, it was just around the corner. So if you are here today and you wouldn't say you're a Christian, you can relax uh, because this sermon isn't about you. Okay, uh, maybe your your friend brought you and invited you to church and after church, you get to turn the question on him and say, so how, are, or, or or her and say, how, how are you doing in this area? <laughs> so, uh, So you can relax, don't worry. Okay, we're just gonna talk about how we're going to unpack Paul's argument, really, on how the church can stop judging itself. Okay, uh, so he's arguing, uh, giving us an argument here. It's very complicated. It's a very nuanced argument throughout uh, Romans chapter 14. No doubt, as uh, Claire was reading it, you might have been like, what is this talking about? What? This is very confusing. And uh, that's exactly right. And in fact, it would probably take us three sermons to go through it. And even then, we probably wouldn't be able to touch on it all. So, but today we're just going to cram it into one in typical Sederis fashion. We're just going to cram it into one, okay? But we're, I want you to see three parts of this argument that Paul's making to urge Christians to love one another and not judge one another, okay? Uh, the first one is the priority of non-judgment. What is Paul asking us to prioritize over judgment? Okay, so the first is the priority. The second are the areas of, of not judging. In what areas is Paul asking that we suspend judgment? And then third, it's uh, the, the goal of non-judgment. What's the end target that not judging points us towards? Okay, so you got it? The, the priority, the areas, and the goal, okay? So let's start off with the priority. Well, we've been thrown into these first century debates of food laws and, and Sabbath observance. Uh, but before we can understand those, we must understand what Paul's trying to prioritize in these debates. Uh, his, his argument for not judging one another it actually unearths a, a priority that he has for each individual in the community. That, that no matter where they fall on the sides of these debates, he has a priority that he wants to prioritize for them. And, and the, the most pointed part of his argument here is right in verse 13. He says, Therefore, do not pass judgment on one another. And whenever you come across the therefore in the Bible, uh, a good tip is you need to figure out what it's there for. Uh, So you just skip up a couple verses to look for that. And and so we're going to skip up to verse 10 because what we're going to see is kind of his central argument of what we need to prioritize instead of judging is right here in verse 10. He says, why do you pass judgment on your brother or sister? Or why do you despise your brother or sister? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself or herself to God. Now, this is really fascinating because Paul says that the central reason for not judging one another is because each of us individually will stand before God one day and give an account for our our actions. But, But he's not saying don't judge because you will have to stand before God and confess your judging of your Christian brother or sister to him one day. He's saying don't judge someone else because that person has to stand before God one day. Give an explanation for his actions or their actions. How strange. And and he isn't saying that we shouldn't judge them because God will judge their actions one day. Instead, it's actually turned around. There's a confessing where the person is confessing to God. And instead, he says that each of us will give our own account to God. And that's a very interesting wrinkle. What's Paul actually talking about here? Well, it actually becomes clear when we consider this dynamics, this picture with his, uh, this confessing picture with his concluding verses here. In verse 22, he says, the faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. He's talking to the more mature person that knows Christians are at a liberty to uh, respond and act in a variety of, of different ways and in a variety of different circumstances that we're going to get to here in a bit. But then he says, blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on themselves." for what they approve. So he has the same picture in mind. And then he says this in verse 23, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because he's eating not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So so what Paul's saying in this picture, why he says we shouldn't judge one of those, because that other person What's going to happen is he doesn't want them to be put in a place where they're forced to come before God and say this, I felt like you were asking me not to eat the meat, but I did because the other Christians were judging me. They were saying I wasn't mature and I wasn't very spiritual anymore. And so in order to gain their approval, what I did was was I ate. And Paul says that is actually sin. Why? Because they acted contrary to their conscience. They acted contrary to their conscience conscience. This is very interesting. You see, Paul's argument is that if you judge your Christian brother or sister in certain areas, you run the risk of coercing them into acting outside of their conscience, outside of how they feel like they have to act in order to honor God. And so what Paul is hoping to help us prioritize when it comes to opinions, it says in the ESV, or disputable matters is how it's translated in other translations. What, what Paul's trying to get us to prioritize is one another's consciences, our consciences. He wants each of us to prioritize the other individual Christian's conscience over the full exercise of Christian freedom in debatable areas. Now, this is confusing. This is nuanced. Now, we're, we're really beyond black and white here, aren't we? We all have just dived into a, a pool of gray matters. And, and it's incredibly remarkable. It's incredibly important, though, because what Paul is saying is that how we relate about seemingly unimportant matters actually proves to be an incredibly, incredibly important thing. So he's saying don't get pushy and mash your convictions that are other than the truth of the gospel, that are other than sin, onto other people's lives. Why? Because you're going to run the risk of making them act against their conscience, which will... Destroy them is the word he uses. He could also translate it, that which will tear them down before God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. That's the goal, isn't it? That's the goal, to come before God at the end of time and say, I acted in accordance to how I felt like you were ask, asking me to, to act in the world, behave well, I did what I felt like you called me to do, to not to do let no one be pressed or enticed or pressured into convictions that they don't approve of. That's the great danger that Paul conceives of in this chapter. Somebody has a conscience qualm, and someone else doesn't. And the one who does not brings pressure to them by example or by argument to consider doing something other than what their conscience says. So like we said, considering the conscience is indeed that which brings about one of the biggest nuances of the Christian faith acted out. It's the central element of Paul's argument here and in chapter 14, even though he doesn't use the word directly, he actually has an identical argument in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, where he uses the word conscience all the way down. In fact, if you want, we, we don't have time to bump over there today, but if you want to read that on your own later today, when you read both these ch- chapters, these parallel passages, they, they really make each other really very, very clear. But how sweet is a clear conscience is what Paul is saying. Paul is really elevating a life of conscientiousness about as high as it can be elevated. What does it mean to be conscientious? Well, to be conscious of somebody else's conscience. That's a very confusing saying because all three of those words are very similar. But to be conscientious means to be conscious of someone else's conscience. How often do we do this? How often do we consider one another's consciences? What we are comfortable with doing, leaning into, We'll unpack these areas here in a little bit. But Paul says that not acting against your conscience is about as high as a duty as one can get because it has a huge effect on your relationship with God. Our conscience is that which is within us, which bears witness to our values, our value system. So, so when um, we do something that we know to be wrong, it's our conscience that's telling us that. Now, the tricky thing and what Paul is saying is that the conscience isn't always right. It isn't always mature. It's clearly immature. Paul's acknowledging that reality, but he's saying that it doesn't make obeying the conscience any less important. That should shock us. Our, our consciences may be wrong, but Paul's saying, Paul saying that we must obey them at all costs. How strange. Um, Martin Luther, the great Christian reformer, Put it like this when he was on trial before the Catholic Church in the 1600s. He said, I, I, I cannot recant. He's talking about salvation by grace alone. I, I cannot recant, for my conscience is held captive by the word of God. And to act against conscience is neither right nor safe. Now this tells us something fascinating about Christian morality generally. Um, it tells us that Christian morality isn't necessarily tied to our actions. What? What? You see, the the clean food becomes unclean for some, not because the uncleanness resides in the food, but in the conscience and in the motive. The only thing that can make clean food unclean is when you eat it doubting its cleanness. That is, eating not from faith is what Paul calls it. You you see, Christian morality here in Paul's mind is not tied to doing certain things and not doing, doing certain things, like eating meat or not eating meat. What makes an act moral is whether we act from faith or not whether we act in line with our conscience or not. And, and that's a big statement because what that means is that morality or pleasing God doesn't necessarily have to do with what you do or what you, what you don't do, whether you eat meat or not, but, but why and how you do it. Eat or not eat, Paul says, but be fully persuaded in your own mind. But when it comes to faith, get that right. Operate in faith all the time. So he's prioritizing clean consciences here in our brothers and sisters. Don't, by way of your judgment, force people to betray their conscience. Don't do it, Paul says, because you will destroy them. You'll tear them down. It's a big deal. One day they will have to confess it to God, yes, but even in the present, they're going to be forced into this existential uncertainty of disobeying God, and it's going to negatively affect their relationship with him. Now, I understand that this has perhaps made the issue of judging one another more complex, of not judging more complex for you. And perhaps you have way more questions now than when you showed up. And, and that's okay. Be sure to write those questions down and continue to investigate them and unpack them together. Paul makes a really complex argument here. But let's try to simplify it a little bit by switching from the priority, that is preserving one another's consciences, to the areas of non-judgment, okay? So um, I've been blown over to First Corinthians. Here we go. Let's go back. Okay. So, where are the areas of that uh, Paul is calling Christians not to judge one another with regards to? Well, he told us right up front, he, he calls them, he says, do not quarrel over opinions. Other translations read, don't argue over disputed matters. So, we have to make clear from the get go that Paul is not talking about the gospel, he's not talking about actual sin. He, he's not saying, hey, don't help one another clarify the gospel. Don't, he's not saying, don't help one another identify and eliminate sin in your lives, as made clear by the other biblical texts. No, in fact, he argues quite the opposite at several points in his letters, right? He's always contending for the true gospel. He's always contending for Christians to help one another flee from sin. No, he's talking about opinions and disputed matters. He gives us a few examples in these food laws and Sabbath observance. You know, Christianity, like no religion ever before, had brought diverse cultures together. And so these food laws cut a couple different ways. Um, And Paul really has all of them in mind here. Uh, First, there were Jewish, Jewish believers who remembered that they had been instructed by God in the Old Testament to stay away from several types of meat, pork and things like this. And even though they were now following Jesus and and the Spirit had revealed to the early church that all types of meat were now clean and acceptable to eat, in some or many of the Jewish believers, there was still something in them that said, no, I can't go there. I I feel like to do so would be to dishonor God. Their consciences were pricked when they considered it. Um, Then there were the Gentile believers. Now, they had a different experience with meat than the Jewish believers did because uh, pagan society and, and likely much of their own personal background, uh, a lot of the meat uh, that was sold in marketplace was actually offered to idols beforehand. It was offered to idols, it was brought to the marketplace to be sold and eaten. And, and uh, it was really done that in order, to, uh, as a way to fund kind of the, the pagan temple worship. And, and for some of them, or, or many of them, something in them felt like they were dishonoring God and they would eat the meat that others had offered to the pagan gods, which would then support the proliferation of pagan worship. You see that this this practice probably happened on some such a large scale. Historians uh, um, suppose that it would be really difficult to keep track of what meat hadn't been previously offered to idols, and so many Gentiles would just choose this, just abstain altogether. Uh, th- then we have another example: this issue of days. Some of the Jewish believers uh, they would feel compelled to continue practicing and, uh, and observing Sabbath, while other believers wouldn't. They would say, uh, "We don't see the significance in this. We should live every day as if it is a rest unto God." so they had different understandings of taking special days. What Paul says, maybe taking on a different day of the week, some not taking Sabbath at all. Paul takes a step back from these debates and says, you know, if, if each person is fully convinced in their own mind that what they're doing in these areas of opinion, uh, in these areas of opinion, is honoring to the Lord, whether it be eating or abstaining from meat or observing the Sabbath or not, then praise God, they are acting within their consciences. Then he goes into this death and life uh, uh, language. He says, moreover, people are, the people who are abstaining, what they're doing is they're dying to things. They're sacrificing things for Christ. The people who are eating, they're living in things or, or, or they're experiencing the freedom of Christ that he came to bring to the world. He says, Jesus came to be Lord of those who would sacrifice for him and Lord of those who would experience the freedoms that he brought. He is Lord of both the dead and the living, Paul says. That's probably its own sermon too, but we, we don't have time to go into it. But but the wrinkle we, we must acknowledge before we talk about the opinions and the disputed matters of our day. I want to go from these ones that we don't really have our heads wrapped around and not was really part of our experience to really, what are they? Like, let's get clear on what are they today? You know, but there's a little wrinkle here. Um, Paul's making it very clear that is what is most important is that our actions in these disputed matters, they should not come or matters should not just come from our conscience, but our conscience that is trying to honor and please God. That's the conscience that gets, that he's trying to encourage here. He actually comes back to it time and time again. The, prerequis- the, the prerequisite for getting the freedom to act on our conscience is that it's tied to our faith in God. That, that's why he closes his argument with the way he does, whatever is not from faith is sin. And so we must ask the question, are our conscience level decisions driven by a desire to honor and please God because we, we truly believe that they reinforce his image in the world? Or are we doing them because we are in fact more concerned with propagating our own image or tying our image to something other than God that we think is beautiful too? Uh, you, you can say it like this, what is our, what's informing our conscience? Is it, is it our faith in God or our desire to, to act in accordance with, with his word and his will or is it some other ideology? Because we will answer to God for that for one day too. Okay, so, so there's a little bit of wrinkle. You'll, you'll hear me kind of talk about as we lean into trying to honor God in these areas, okay? So let's unpack what are the areas of our time. we we'll me give you a few softballs uh, um, before we go into, into some uh, other ones that are a little more uh, complicated. Uh, communion, how we take communion, when we take communion, how often, what we envision happening when we take it. They're all really disputable matters of opinion. Do the bread and wine turn into the the physical body and blood of Christ, or is it just representative? Is grace actually transmitted at that time, or is it just a time just like any other? Does it have to be bread and wine? Should we take it every Sunday, every quarter? Uh, the, The church throughout history has gotten in fights over it and has judged one another unnecessarily, has split up and divided over it. But each party is convinced in their own mind of the proper way to honor God through communion, and so we shouldn't judge one another, but let each of us act in accordance to our conscience. After all, people are really just trying to pray, or to—they're really just concerned with how to honor God here. Praise God. Uh, baptism, when people are baptized, and how people—or when people are baptized and how people are baptized—are disputable matters of opinion. Should we do it at birth? Should we do it later? Should we sprinkle? Should we dunk? Another debate that has plagued us with the church over the last two thousand years, where people won't sit at the same table with people who baptize in a different way. Freedom in Christ says that baptism can happen in any way so long as it's from faith. Paul might say, who cares so long as each is convinced in their own mind? Who are we to judge one another? Let each person be convinced in their own mind so long as they are focused on acting in faith and honoring God. So communion, baptism. There's no reason why we can't be friends with other churches who do things different ways. We must be unified. And unfortunately, our disunity That has come about because of these two issues, it's done such discredit to a loving God who wants his people to be unified. Let's move on to some other things. Um, Careers and industries. For many people, uh, their consciences are pricked when they consider working in the alcohol industry or the entertainment industry. And so they actually sacrifice pursuing jobs in those sectors in order to honor God for others, their, their freedom in Christ says that it's okay to work in any industry, except probably the, the sex industry. But they must not judge those who feel as if they can't try, who, 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 they must not judge those who feel like they can't and try to change their minds on the subject because then those whose consciences that are urging sacrifice, they're compromised. And, and likewise, those who are sacrificing shouldn't call those who are operating in freedom to restrict themselves. You see, both are good things. Each of these has a sacrifice element and a freedom element. And Paul says, Christ is both Lord of the dead and the living. Those who are sacrificing things, those who are living into freedoms. Um, Boycotts. This is a really big one for us here in in Seattle. Uh, Some people's uh, consciousnesses are pricked when they consider that the things that they purchase might profit questionable corporations. And so they sacrifice purchasing their products in order to honor God. Now, to, to, to honor God, not necessarily look good to others. They, they truly see it as a way of honoring God. Now, now, freedom in Christ says this is a debatable issue, and it's okay to get a ride share from any place. It's not sinful to eat chicken sandwiches made by certain fast food chains. Uh, after all, Paul ar- ar- argued that Christians had the freedom to purchase meat that was proliferating pagan worship. You see, sacrifice and freedom now, with the subject, we get a cool wrinkle too. That is, if you are with a, a friend and, and one of you says, you know, I'm, I really feel uh, really pricked with regards to taking, riding Uber right now, um, then take a lift with that friend <laughs> instead. You know, there's a, an element here. You, we don't push people to go against their consciences. But also, the Uber protester should not judge their Christian brother or sister for using Uber when they're on their own. Um, how about this? Um... Coronavirus. How we respond to coronavirus is a disputable matter of opinion, is it not? Sacrifice in Christ says that some people's consciences, their consciences, stress that in order to honor God, they should give up the communal things they love in order to lower the risk of transmission. Freedom in Christ says that it's okay to move about the city as our governing heads have allowed in this time. Freedom in Christ says it's okay to get on an airplane, it's okay to gather in crowds outside. It's permissible to act within the mandates of the governor that he has provided in restaurants, bars, salons, heck, even churches. But if your conscience is pricked to stay away from these areas in order to honor God, you must. You must. And we must not judge one another as our consciences direct us towards sacrifice and freedoms in different ways in this area, even now. How different would this community be? How different is this community from the world? Um, politics, to venture here uh, in, in this city, in this setting, at this time in the election cycle, with this election, <laughs> in our extremely polarized landscape, um, might be unwise or exactly what we need. So um, let's dive into it, okay? Uh, in, in sharing here, I actually don't want to add anything to the conversation here. I don't want to spend a, a ton of time here. I just want to point to the work of others, actually. Uh, who are operating with this nuanced level of understanding re, re, um, regarding how to bring Christians together, even those who might have different opinions in politics. Um, a guy named Jason Gibbony. Uh, don't forget that name. Uh, it won't be the last time you hear it, Jason Gibney. Uh, he's a black author of a book entitled Compassion and Conviction. He's the founder and president of the AND Campaign, which draws from the premise of the book, uh, that he wrote that Christians need compassion and conviction to enter into the the public, highly politicized realm. Um, and I really know you're going to hear his name again, uh, because while he might be young, um, he's incredibly intelligent. He has magnificent oratory skills, and he has such a prophetic voice for the Christian church um, in these days. And as, as I listen to him talk, I, I can't help but just... Connect the dots between what, how he talks, what he talks about, the 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 level of intentionality and intelligence that he speaks with, with uh, the late Dr. Reverend Martin Luther King, Jr. as well. I mean, it's really profound. But his and and came and campaign, it aims to equip and challenge Christians on both sides of the aisle, both sides of the political spectrum, to reapply the the compassion, the conviction of Christ in public. Uh, it, It urges Christians to set aside their partisan differences and come together on the common ground of biblical principles and engage politics through the lens of neighborly love, a robust neighborly love that he says can only be accomplished at great cost to the self and by taking a stand against the ideological orthodoxies of both conservatism and progressivism in order to pursue Christian orthodoxy. He truly is a peacekeeper in this arena. Um, He'll say things like this. Um, At some point, the gospel always comes into conflict with our cultural preferences and with the fictional cultural narratives that we've created to tickle our ears and flatter our tribes. He says we're, we're too willing to give our politicians free reign and blank checks to pursue whatever they want so long as they agree with one or two of the policy points that are most important to us. And most pointedly, we live in a society where advocating for the unborn and racial justice is apparently just too much to ask of the American partisan mind. And really what the conclusion that he forces is that whichever party you vote for is a disputable matter of opinion. Because similar to food laws and Sabbath, neither ideology is synonymous with Christian orthodoxy. You can't get there. There are Christians on both sides of the aisle who feel that their position is one that's honoring to God as well. Are there not Christians who consciences, whose consciences would be pricked if they voted red? Are there not Christians whose consciences would be pricked if they voted blue? But freedom in Christ says that we can vote for whoever and whatever. Moreover, the scriptures actually tell us that no matter who comes to power, God is the one who has sovereignly instated them to accomplish his means in the world. That's a big statement. and One that needs a lot of unpacking and is very nuanced. A lot of conversation. We don't have the time to dive into it today. But we must not judge one another and coerce one another to act against conscience because we will stand before, before God's judgment one day for it. So now prioritizing the conscience exploring these areas, okay? We're done. We're closing the book on the areas. This is all great, but it doesn't get to the heart of the issue, does it? The question is how do we deal with each other now? How as a church do we relate to one another, being so different from one another? How do we do it? Well, it's by focusing on the greater goal that not judging actually allows us to pursue together. Verse 17. That's where Paul makes this clear. He says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. It's not a matter of these areas. That's not what the kingdom of God has to do with, but of righteousness and of peace. And of joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. There's that word mutual upbuilding. Do you see the goal of the redeemed community? The goal of the redeemed community is the kingdom of God coming to earth, not eating, the food, eating food the right way, working at the right place, voting for the right people. The goal is Jesus's increased reign as king here and now. And the great thing is our consciences don't have to be aligned for that to happen. You see, there, there's competition among kings in the world, and and people judge kings and leaders by the peace and the joy and the righteousness that their followers experience. Uh, Queen Sheba shows up in the Old Testament in, to Solomon's kingdom, and she says, "How happy are your servants? How joyful are your people? You must be the wisest king. Your kingdom truly is the greatest kingdom on the earth." And so here's the thing: in a time when our country has never been more polarized volatile, hostile, at a time when there's not only more opinions out there and debatable matters out there, but thanks to social media and its crude uh, political sloganing, its algorithms, people are more entrenched in tribes than ever. And it's in this time that the church can be empowered by the love of Christ to be more beautiful ever. It has the the unique opportunity to experience the peace and joy that love brings to one another even though there's a diversity of people acting on their consciences in different ways. The other option to pursuing the kingdom of God right now is to let our times divide us, just like they are dividing the rest of the world. And In fact, what a joyful spectacle that would be to Satan. It's his goal to see that those who have separated themselves from the world to actually fall in pieces among one another. Our discord would really be his melody in that way. Now, I want to be clear here, too. Focusing on the kingdom doesn't mean that we set the sidelines on public engagement or anything like that. It just means that it forces us to ask different questions as we interact with the public realm. It means we're connected to a more powerful source of love when interacting with others. It keeps us grounded in what we learned in First Peter over this last year, that we are sojourners and temporary residents. Meaning we're different, yes, but we're still residents nonetheless. And so the call of God for his people in all times and in all places is that they seek the welfare of the cities that they're in. Some, some of the means might look the same, but we do it towards different ends. To see Jesus's kingdom of righteousness, peace and joy manifest itself in our midst. To see, to see his kingdom built up right now. And, and what happens is our kingdom theology begins to manifest itself in kingdom ideology and action, not the other way around where our conservative or progressive ideology influences our ideas of what the kingdom should look like. So what does that mean? It means we converse in the real world instead of online, friends. It means that we see the whites of the eyes of the person in front of us, and therefore we cannot dehumanize them. It means we dive uh, into deeper conversations with one another that aren't focused on what do you think about X, but how are you doing? Where are you struggling? What is God calling you to? How can I help? How can we pray that God's kingdom flourishes in one another's lives? It means we, we don't mind for areas where we might think differently because we humans are so weak by nature that we can hardly discover difference in one another than experience in estrangement of affection for that person once we realize that we're different. No, instead we do the opposite of what our culture does. Our our culture encounters someone who thinks differently than them, is completely dumbfounded by it, and calls them stupid. But we give each other the benefit of the doubt. We say, this is my Christian brother, this is my Christian sister. And in their faith, they're doing their best to honor God in their actions. Because that's really what being a Christian is all about. Paul points us to Christ in this passage, and he says this. He says, Christ has surrendered an infinite amount of freedom to bring your brother or sister to God. Will you surrender a little bit of freedom in order to build them up? He says, Christ surrendered all of his rights to bring them to God. Would you surrender just a few of yours to build them up? He says, Christ poured out their blood to bring your brother or sister to God. Will you sacrifice just a little of yourself in order to build them up and not tear them down? So we must confront that reality, the reality that says this in our hearts. And I pray it's our, 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 it's our message that guides us during these times. Christ died for my Christian brother or sister. How can I die for them too? That's how God builds up his people. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you now um, as your people gathered, of, of differing thoughts, of, of how um, how a lot of things are supposed to work in the world, God. And uh, Lord, I just ask right now that, that you would give us the grace that you had, the grace that looked down upon us, so that while we were still sinning, you decided to sacrifice everything for us. And so while we may not agree with everything that, that we might think about uh, the world, God, while there might be differences of opinion, while there might be differences in in disputable matters, God. We pray that you would give us a, a love that is united on the strong message of the gospel of Jesus Christ that says he came to die for us, and so we must die for one another, God. And so I thank you for all of my Christian brothers and sisters here. I pray that you would continue to empower them to adhere to their consciences in all the areas of life that they feel like that they need to do in order to honor you, God. For them to go against that is neither right nor safe. And so, God, I pray that that as we become unified, that this world would look upon us and be dumbfounded, that they would see the, the beauty of people coming together and loving each other in radical ways who don't agree on everything, in more radical ways than even people who do agree on things tend to love each other in this world, not empowered by your spirit. So we pray that you come with us. Empower this band right now to lead us in worship, to lead our hearts in both repentance and in celebration of what you've done. Amen.